You are listening to a sermon by New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. This morning, uh, our text is going to come from Romans chapter 15. You heard Reuben refer to that before uh, his prayer. So you might like to have Romans 15 open. And the reason for Romans 15 is really because later this afternoon, when I'm back here and, and trying to get my Spanish brain on, we're going to look at the same text because today is a mission Sunday for us at Misión Nueva. When we particularized as a church back in October, that was a wonderful, joyful uh, landmark for us as a congregation. We debated, do we change our name? Uh, normally a mission is a church plant, and once you're particularized in, in the PCA and you're no longer a church plant, you might not consider yourself a mission. But we decided, no, the name is, is good, and we're going to stick with the name because we want to remember that we are still a church who is on mission. We are mission, missionally focused, especially as we look at the community around us and all the many Spanish speakers who need to hear the gospel of grace in Christ Jesus clearly. So we continue to call ourselves Misión Nueva, but we also want our congregation more and more to have a global horizon for mission. And that's what we're going to do this afternoon. So we'll worship, and then we'll go up to the youth building up here, and we'll have some food together, and there is a visiting MTW representative, Mission to the World representative, who's going to be talking to us about ways that we, even as a very small congregation of some 40, 50 people, can be more involved in praying for global mission, not just the local mission that's on our doorstep here. So that was the spur for me to turn to Romans 15. Uh, And I thought it might not be a bad text for us to consider together this morning as well. I want to ask a question then just to begin. And for the children too, I wonder, uh, maybe the kids are sometimes better at noticing these things than we are as adults. Do you notice, if you, if you come in that door, I know some of you come in other doors when you come to worship, but if you come in that door, do you notice what's on the, on the wall? So you come in those doors and, and just to your right, there's something on the wall right before you enter the sanctuary. Do you know what that is? It's a big world map, isn't it? And if you look closely, what's around the edges of that world map? It's, it's pictures of all the different missionaries that this congregation supports and prays for and has relationships with. And uh, I want us to be thinking about that map as we prepare to come to this section of Romans 15 because I think it captures perfectly the thing that Paul wants to excite us about, the thing that God, by his spirit through Paul, wants to get us excited about. And in some ways, I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning. You are a church that has, for a long time, been strong in your support for missionaries and global mission around the world. But sometimes the choir needs encouragement, too, and a reminder uh, about the tune that they're singing. So this morning, we're going to be thinking about this, this idea of global gospel ambition, That's really the main point of this text. Paul wants to stir us up. He wants to get us excited about the global horizon that the gospel needs to continue to go to the ends of the earth. 
And so we'll, we'll, we'll be considering that together. But I just want to ask you that as we begin. How often are some of those missionaries on that map right there in your prayers? How often are they on your mind? How often do you communicate with them? Maybe you read their newsletters. Maybe you send them an encouraging note. Maybe you financially support them. But I wonder how often that's the case for each of you. Paul's writing this letter to the Romans in the late 50s of the first century AD. He's writing it from Corinth, where he's already founded a church. So he's in Corinth. He's never been to Rome yet. He wants to go. He knows some people who have traveled from Corinth and other places there, but he's never been there. He didn't start the church in Rome. He can't wait to get there, but he's writing to them as an apostle, as a church planter, as a pastor, who's never actually been there yet. And many of the people to whom he's writing don't know him personally very well. It's going to take Paul a few years to get from Corinth to Rome. Not because of the distance, but because first he's going to circle back to Jerusalem. He's been raising funds as he's moved through Greece. And now he's going to take that money and he's going to take it back to Jerusalem for the support of the poorer Christian believers, the poorer saints in Jerusalem. And you know, well, or you will know as you go through Acts and the series that you all are involved with, that that is, uh, that's a, that's a little hiccup in Paul's travel plans. When he gets to Jerusalem and he ends up being arrested, but he does eventually make it to Rome. But he's not there yet when he sends this letter. And so he writes this letter to Rome from Corinth. And what is Romans about? Many of you have read Romans. What comes to mind when you think of this majestic letter? Probably, probably you think of the early chapters of Romans, where Paul lays out the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he points to Christ wonderfully, doesn't he? And he lays out all the theology that we have cherished from this precious letter, that we are justified in Christ, that by his spirit he's sanctifying us. Chapters 1 through 11 are just dripping with rich theology in Romans. But that's not the end of the letter. And we might argue it's not even the main point of Romans. Because Romans goes on after chapter 11, and then in chapters 12 to 14, and the beginning of 15, Paul begins to say, okay, if that's the truth of the gospel in Christ, if that's the power of God to transform sinners, so what for your life together? What effect should that have on you as Christian brothers and sisters, as you bear with one another, as you are patient with one another, as you love one another and pray for one another and sharpen one another and build each other up in the faith? And that takes us to the beginning of chapter 15. But that's also not the end of the letter. It's not really until we come to this section where we're on the cusp of the very, the very climax, I think, of Paul's letter to the Romans. Chapter 16 is there. It's a lot of greetings and names, and that's important as Paul, as Paul weaves the relational web that he wants to establish with the church there, but it's really this section of Romans that we're going to be focusing on, Romans 15, 14 to 21, and following, where Paul finally reveals what's he really, really excited about. He loves the theology that he's written about to them. He wants them to grow as a church, but what does he really want? He wants to come to Rome 
and use Rome as a jumping off point to get to Spain. Paul, it's not that he's using them. It's not a, it's not a strictly utilitarian relationship for Paul. But he wants to go to Rome so that he can go beyond Rome to Spain. Why? Because the gospel has not been proclaimed in Spain. Because nobody that far west in the middle of the first century has heard the name of Christ named. And that's what Paul's really excited about. So that brings us, <clears throat> excuse me, to our text. And as we, as we prepare for this, Paul has, has launched in Romans chapter 15 by being very clear that he wants them to grasp a couple of things. He wants them to grasp the scope of the gospel. The gospel's not just for Jews. The gospel's also for Gentiles. It's for the nations of the world. Every tribe and tongue and nation, he says in verses 1 to 13. And he wants them to grasp not just the scope of the gospel, but also the hope of the gospel. That the gospel is the only thing that holds out hope for sinners in this broken world. And that's where he ends there, in verse 13 of chapter 15. Let me read it to you. May the God of hope fill you with all peace, joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So Paul's primed them to see this vision, the scope of the gospel going to the nations, the great hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ for sinners, and now he's... He's building up to the big ask. He's building up to stirring them up to have the same global horizon for gospel mission that Paul has. So let's read our text in Romans 15, verses 14 to 21. Hear now God's own word. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Would you pray with me, and we'll ask the Lord's help in understanding this together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this majestic letter to the Romans, and we pray now that by... Your spirit, the same spirit that Paul speaks of in this text, the spirit who brings hope and joy and new life and power, that by that same spirit you would bring light and illumine our hearts and our minds that we might understand, that we might embrace, and that we might live according to what we hear in this text from your word. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.
So Paul's aiming for Spain. And he makes that really clear as well in the text that follows ours. Just, just briefly, let me point you to where he says this in verses 24 and following. Look what he says. I hope to see you in passing as I go on to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Romans, I can't wait to see you, Roman Christians, but I'm not going to stay long because I want to get to Spain. Later in the first century, after Paul's died, right at the end of the first century, in fact, we have an early Christian text that's known as First Clement. And First Clement, writing from Rome, reflects on Paul. It's not inspired scripture, but here's the tradition of First Clement. Clement says, this is how Paul was remembered as a global evangelist. He says, Paul pointed the way to the prize for endurance. Seven times he bore chains. He was sent into exile and stoned. He served as a herald in both the East and the West. And he received the noble reputation for his faith. He taught righteousness to the whole world and came to the very limits of the West, bearing his witness before the rulers. So we don't know for sure but I think there's an awfully good chance that Paul made it to Spain in the end. We don't have that in our New Testament, but we know that's where he wanted to get to. And there's a tradition that remembers him as having reached the limits of the West. Paul says he wants to get there. Paul has an ambition. Look at verse 20 in our text. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. Paul's ambition is a a global gospel ambition to take the gospel where it hasn't gone. And he says in this text, there are two things that have to happen in order for that mission to be accomplished. A global gospel ambition needs two things. First of all, it needs gospel churches that grow. And secondly, it needs gospel workers that go. So we're going to look at how our text teaches us about both of these aspects that are necessary for the fulfillment of a global gospel ambition. There have to be gospel churches that are growing. And there have to be ministers and other gospel workers who are trained and who are willing to go and to take that gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's look first at this idea that we need to have gospel churches that are growing in verses 14 to 16. Paul begins by praising them in a way, doesn't he? He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. He's heard about them. He's gotten reports through his network of friends that have connections in Rome. And so he praises them. He says, you're doing well. You're doing well as believers, as as churches. In fact, there are lots of small churches in Rome that he has in mind as he's writing this letter. But as the church fathers, the, the ancient fathers recognized... Paul isn't just praising them. He's also exhorting them and encouraging them on. He's saying, you're doing very well, but let's, let's keep going. Let's not forget to keep on growing. And look what he praises them for. He basically says, brothers and sisters in Rome, what you once were, you are no longer. Look at how the gospel has transformed you. Let me show you what I mean. Keep a finger in Romans chapter 15 and turn back to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. Romans chapter 1. At the very beginning of the letter, of course you know that Romans 1 lays out the sinfulness of sin as clearly as any text in the scriptures. 
There's no one who does not stand condemned and guilty before God, who is a holy God, because of the sinfulness of sin. And Paul says something very interesting in verse 29, which finds its opposite echo in our text in chapter 15. Paul says in Romans 1.29, that those sinners, among whom the Romans were, before they believed in Christ, were full and filled with things. What are they full and filled with? Look at, they were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, he says, middle of the verse. But what does he say in chapter 15? Chapter 15, verse 14. I'm satisfied, brothers, because now you are full of goodness. Same, same word, same form, that contrasts at the end of the letter what the gospel has done. Back in verse 29 of chapter 1, he says, You are filled, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. But now, chapter 15, verse 14, now you're filled with all knowledge. What you once were, you now are not. And why is that? It's because of the power of the gospel. The gospel has transformed your lives. Your faith in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit has filled you in a completely new way. You are new people. And Paul's reminding them of that. The great change that has happened. Look, he says, at what the power of God has done among you in the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, we've got to be clear on this too. Because Paul assumes it in our passage. He's wanting to take the gospel to Spain. But what is this gospel that he, that he proclaims as he goes, as he travels? Well, the gospel is this good news, isn't it? About Jesus Christ. That he has been at great pains to detail through the entire letter. Chapter 3, verse 25 The gospel is Jesus Christ whom God has put forward as a propitiation for sinners. What is a propitiation? It's it's that Christ on the cross shed his own blood as a sacrifice of atonement to cover your sin if you turn to him and to turn away God's wrath from you. That, Paul says, that's the good news of the gospel. He summarizes it again many places. Chapter 4, verse 25. What's the gospel Paul has in mind? The gospel is this. Jesus Christ, who was delivered over for your trespasses and raised for your justification. That's Paul's gospel. Jesus Christ is at the center of this gospel message. Jesus Christ who is the one who bears the curse in our place, the one who obeys God's covenant fully for us, and as a result, when we turn to him by faith, we are declared righteous by God. That's Paul's gospel. In Christ, you're justified. In Christ and by His Spirit, you're growing in sanctification. If you're in Christ, there's no longer any condemnation. And that's the gospel of Christ that Paul assumes in our passage here in in chapter 15. And Paul goes on then in chapter 15, verse 14, saying, Look at what the gospel has done among you. You are a church full of justified sinners who are being sanctified by the power of God, and you're full of goodness. You're filled with knowledge. For what? For what purpose? To what end, Paul? so that you might be able to instruct one another. Verse 14. What does Paul mean there? 
He doesn't mean, we, we could translate this a variety of ways, instruct, admonish, maybe encourage, but what Paul doesn't mean is that having been saved by Christ, you're meant to go around now in the congregation and point out other people's faults, right? That's, that's very easy to see, and sometimes we're tempted to do that. That's not the kind of instruction or admonishment that he has in view here. That's not, that's not what this word means, and it's not what it means in this context for Paul. As you're growing in Christ, you don't point out other people's sins and faults. Instead, what does he mean? He means that if you know the gospel, if you've been changed by the gospel, you have been filled with goodness and knowledge in order to encourage and build each other up. And that's been a real focus right from the beginning of chapter 15. You have been changed so that you, and now I'm not talking about the church at Rome, I'm talking about the church here at New Life, So that you, having been changed by the gospel, having been instructed from God's word, that you can also instruct one another. How? By pointing each other to Christ more and more. By encouraging each other and stirring each other up to love and to good works. By doing what chapter 15 focuses on. That is, gathering together to celebrate the hope and the joy that we have in Christ and to sing praise because quite frankly as I look out on this congregation there might be some of you here who have Jewish descent but I'm guessing that's very few I think this is a congregation full of Gentiles exactly the kind of thing Paul has in view here in chapter 15 and he says praise God because in Christ he has saved the Gentiles so that they can glorify him And that's the kind of instruction and encouragement and mutual building up that Paul has in view here. In order for there to be a global gospel ambition, Paul says, there first have to be gospel churches that grow and that keep on growing and that grow together in the gospel. In verse 15, Paul goes on and he says, in effect, all right, maybe I've written to you a bit too boldly. Maybe I've been a little bit too frank in this letter as I have said certain things. Maybe that's not quite warranted. It doesn't feel to you because you don't even know me personally yet. I haven't visited Rome. But what have I written to you about? I've been passionate, Paul says, about making sure you understand God's grace in Christ so that you can pursue holiness together. I have been focused, Paul says, on making sure that you understand God's grace in Christ so that you can show grace to one another. And verse 16, he goes on, he says, look, I've done this because it's my job. This is my commission. This is what I am an apostle of Christ for. I have been commissioned by the grace given to me by God. I'm a minister of the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. And my ministry, he says is like that of a priest. What does Paul mean? Instead of offering a sacrifice on an altar, a sacrifice of an animal, Paul says, my ministry is priest-like in this way. I get to preach the message of repentance and faith in Christ to you so that I can offer you, all of you, even you Gentiles, back to God as an offering acceptable in His sight. One that is set apart by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, that's my priestly ministry. And that's the kind of thing you've tasted. Even though I haven't been there yet, that's what I get to do among the Gentiles everywhere I go. 
And I'm going to do the same thing when I come to you. As one commentator says, Paul's not concerned here only with the initial proclamation of the gospel. But he's also concerned with the formation of communities of believers. Paul's not out to conduct an evangelistic rally. He's not out to have a revival meeting with an altar call and then move on. What Paul wants is to proclaim the gospel and then to begin to unfold all of its beautiful implications for all of life and to press that in for believers and to train others in every city he goes to so that he can establish gospel-centered, growing, healthy churches that will continue to flourish after he leaves town and moves on. That's Paul's vision. Paul wants the Roman church, in effect, to become a base of operations for his global mission that continues to grow, but also supports by sending out. Gospel mission needs gospel churches that grow. So how does that happen at a place like New Life Presbyterian Church? Well, this is a big part of it. This is, this is the chief part of it, we might say. Gathering on the Lord's Day for corporate worship together. And everything that happens around this as well. The kids in their Sunday school classes, I think you call them life groups here, is that right? Life groups, Bible study groups, men's groups, men's and women's groups, youth groups that meet together. All of that is the way that this church, in its growth as a community, a gospel community, is able to do what Paul is envisioning here. You have been changed. You have been filled with God's spirit and God's power and the knowledge of Christ. So instruct one another in that. Build each other up in that. Grow in that. But don't just grow for the sake of yourself, Paul says. Don't even just grow for the sake of filling this room. You've gone to one service in the last few months, again, from two, is that right? And I know that these things ebb and flow over the years. Well, wouldn't it be fantastic at some point, maybe not uh, for those who are on the ministry staff, but wouldn't it be great to have the, the very good problem that this place was overflowing? Because as you go through Acts, as you pray for your neighbors, as you invite them, as you speak of Christ together... God would bring more and more people here. Wouldn't that be great? But Paul says that would, but that's still not the end goal. It's not just about you, personally. It's not even just about you as New Life, a congregation. It's about what you can do and become as a platform, as a, as a base of operations for God's global mission. Global gospel ambition needs churches that grow, but it also needs gospel workers that go. And that's where Paul turns in the rest of this passage, verses 17 to 21. Verse 17, Paul expresses a certain amount of pride. He boasts. But he doesn't boast in the number of churches he's planted, the number of souls that he's saved. He doesn't boast in his preaching ability. What does he boast in? He boasts only in Christ. And then he goes on in verses 18 and 19 to give the reason why he can do that. He's a commissioned gospel builder. Paul uses this language all through his letters. Ministry, 
Ministry has to be about leadership. You have lots of wonderful leaders, and you saw your leaders, your elders and ministers up here earlier in the service. Yes, ministry has aspects of leadership, but you know for Paul, he never ever uses any terminology of leadership. And he does that intentionally, I think. Paul uses over and over again the language of gospel labor and work and service and ministry. And that's what he does here again in this text. He says, I've been commissioned to be a gospel worker, a gospel builder. And a gospel builder is one who knows his theology, yes, but also works really hard to take the gospel out. And Paul says, whatever I've accomplished, Christ has accomplished through me. It's not an either or, by the way. Paul's not saying, I haven't done anything. Paul's worked hard. And he says this in other places. He has prayed and sweated and studied and loved and cried and done it all again. But he says, whatever I've done in my ministry, it's been Christ working through me. And by the power of His Spirit, that's where the fruit comes from. I work and Christ works through me. And that's why I boast in Christ, Paul says. See, what drives Paul is this theological conviction that he has that Christ, by His Word and by His Spirit, is the power that builds up the church. That's where it all comes from. And that motivates Paul to work even harder to travel tirelessly. Verse 19, he emphasizes that the Spirit is the source of any success of his gospel mission. It's made effective by Christ and by the power of the Spirit. So pastors, church planters, missionaries, evangelists, all of them know, all of them should know, it's Christ working through me. Spirit of Christ that works through the gospel to transform people and build up churches. And then Paul speaks very interestingly in verse 19 about the itinerary of his mission travels. Do you see it right there at the end of verse 19? He says, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. What's Paul talking about? Why is this the result of his faithfulness and of Christ's effectiveness in his ministry? This so that from Jerusalem to Illyricum. First of all, where's Illyricum? Right? If, if you're like me, you wonder where that is on the map. You're not going to find Illyricum on that world map out there. But bring to mind actually that map for a moment again. And I'll ask the, the younger people here, the boys and girls perhaps, Do you learn about geography in school? I know you do. You have map tests sometimes, and you think about maps. Sometimes it's fun to make maps, actually, and to try to think about how you would draw the map. So let me, let me ask you something, if you're a, a, a boy or a girl here this morning. If you had a piece of paper, maybe you do with your kid's bulletin and a pencil, how would you draw the map to get from your house to church? How would you do that? Could you do it? Are there some turns along the way? Maybe you don't know all the street names. Maybe you don't know, you know, every every twist and turn right and left. But could you draw a line that gets us from your house to New Life Church? That's what we would call an itinerary line, a sense of how you travel from point A to point B. And that's actually how maps were made 
in the first century, in Paul's world. Paul didn't have a map like we have out here on his wall or on his phone. There wasn't any Google Maps. There's no Google Earth to check where you're going to go. Instead, they had itineraries. And we know this because there's a beautiful one that's been preserved. It's, if you want to go home and look it up, it's called the Putinger table. P-E-U-T-I-N-G-E-R, if you want to go and have a look. But let me tell you about it, so you don't have to go have a look. Here's how this worked. It preserves an itinerary map, just like Paul would have been familiar with. And instead of having the globe kind of expanded and laid out like on our maps, it showed you the routes between cities, and it stretched it this way. A really long map. In fact, the one we have is 22 feet long. And it goes all the way from India on one side to Spain on the other side. And guess what's at the center? Because this is a a, a Greco-Roman map. Rome is right at the center of the world. And Paul says, guess what? Of course, I've begun in Jerusalem. That's where this all started. That's where Jesus was crucified. That's where he rose from the dead. That's where the gospel begins in Acts chapter 1 to go to the ends of the earth. And Paul says, I've gone in a circle. And the circle he means is this itinerary line that travels from this part of this ancient map all the way through Greece to Illyricum. Illyricum, which is north of Greece, but not quite down to the Italian peninsula just yet. Because Paul hasn't gotten to Rome. Paul's got an ancient map in mind. And with that ancient map, it helps us appreciate a little bit more where he wants to go. He wants to go all the way to this edge of the map. All the way to the end of the known world, which is Spain. He wants to see the gospel go this way. Of course, we have a tradition as well that that Thomas perhaps takes the gospel all the way the other direction, to India. But this is Paul's letter, so it's Paul's story. He wants to go from Jerusalem to Illyricum, on to Rome, and finally to Spain. That's what he means when he says in verse 19, all the way around to Illyricum. I fulfilled it thus far, but I have farther to go. I have farther to go. Will you support me in this mission, Roman Christians? Another commentator puts it this way. When Paul is talking about proclaiming the gospel along this itinerary, it's not simply an initial preaching mission. It's a full sequence of activities resulting in settled, established churches. All of this involves the gospel and its full elaboration along the way. So verse 19 is not just a chronology of Paul's missionary journeys. It's a first century vision of Paul's, well, Paul's vision of the world and where he thinks the gospel needs to go. It's a truly global gospel ambition. Paul wants to see Christ named everywhere. And so we come toward the close of our passage and the close of our time this morning with verses 20 and 21. And this is the real climax. Global gospel ambition needs churches that are growing. It needs gospel workers that are willing to go. And Paul says his ambition is to go and to build, and he's desperate, he's ambitious to get there. 
He's, this word that he uses talk, it gives us a sense of he's so eager. He's got an eager willingness. He cannot wait to get there. He's got other things that he must do first, but he can't wait to get there. It's not ambition in the sense of a prideful thing, a bad thing. It's an eager willingness to go. Again, one of the early church fathers says, what Paul's meaning here is that he wants to get there first so that he can proclaim the gospel of Christ in all of its truth and all of its fullness and see the work of God in transforming the lives of sinners. Think about that in our world. Paul's not just talking about going to unreached people groups, I don't think here. That's a, that's a noble thing, and some missions organizations are focused exclusively on that. That's a wonderful thing to do. But in our globalized world here, two millennia since Paul, what do we face? We face a world where there are lots of places where Christ once was named, but is no longer named. We have a world in which there are lots of areas where there used to be vibrant, growing gospel churches, where the the gospel of grace and the truths of the scriptures were proclaimed and Christ was exalted, and that's no longer the case. I think that's what Paul would also include in his global gospel vision here. And are we as zealous, as ambitious as he is to see that happen? You know, I've, I've lived a lot of places around the world, Australia, England, Israel. I've traveled other places as well. Everywhere I go, guess what I see? I see Mormon missionaries on the streets, eagerly engaging people. And I see Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on the doors. Do we want to get there too? Do we want to send people there to get the gospel of grace clear, to establish growing churches that can themselves grow and bear fruit? That's Paul's vision here. Some of you know Joel Kim, President Joel Kim at the seminary, who's part of this congregation. In a few weeks, he and I will be traveling to Cambodia and Vietnam, uh, representing the seminary. And we're going to visit some MTW missionaries that we know there. And this is a great opportunity for us to go, to listen, to learn from those brothers, many of whom are American missionaries, and many of whom are local Cambodian and Vietnamese pastors that have been trained and are themselves leading and and doing the work of ministry in churches there. And we want to learn from them about the needs. Those are hard places to go, difficult places. We want to encourage them as well. And we want to bring back some of that vision for the students at the seminary. There are also eight students from the seminary who will go the week after that, the week of our spring break in April. Uh, so, so Monse here and some others that you might know are part of that team. They're going to Japan. Japan, a country where... It has been very, very difficult over the centuries to establish the gospel. A country in which less than half of 1% of the population is Christian. 125 million people in Japan. Three times the number of people in California. And very, very few gospel churches where the gospel of grace in Christ is proclaimed. We want those students to go. And of course it's good to take trips to build things and to do things and to serve, but actually the students are going to learn and to listen and to observe and to hear from the missionary church planters there, what's it like? What are the challenges? What are the joys? How can we pray for you? These are some of the ways that we can engage with global mission, even from here in Escondido. Uh, 
John Chrysostom said, an ancient father of our text here, he said, you get the sense that Paul wants to go wherever the battle is hottest. He wants to go wherever the labor and the toil, says Chrysostom, are the most difficult. Now I know not all of you are going to go. I'm here. I'm probably not going to go and stay uh, internationally. But what can we do? Let me, let me conclude with a few ideas for you, for your families, for your congregation here to consider how you might stir up your imagination for this kind of global gospel ambition. First of all, uh, you, can, you can do so together, maybe even with your family. So our family, after family worship, when we have time in the evenings, which isn't every night, are reading right now the book about Adoniram Judson, who was one of the first missionaries ever to be sent from these shores, American shores, to take the gospel to Burma, modern Myanmar, Burma. And Judson takes that, and we've been really amazed, not only to read about the challenges of Judson's mission, the real persecution and hardship he faces, but also to hear the great joy and hope that the gospel of Christ brought to those very first Burmese believers. And the way that story is told is, I think, cultivating in our family a new appreciation for this sense of global gospel horizon. And how can we continue to pray and support? Maybe for you it also could involve having a look at that map out there. Some of the names that you know or you could get to know better. Signing up for newsletters. Praying more regularly for the missionaries that this church supports. And asking the Lord that those gospel churches might be established. When I was a young boy, I had, uh, I grew up in a PCA church in the Midwest. It was a very large PCA church. Over a thousand members. Big building. And as I came in, I still have the memory, very vividly, of walking through a hallway, longer than that hallway. And all along the wall were pictures and letters and postcards and updates from the more than 50 missionaries that our church supported. And I came to learn later, and as I reflect on this more as an adult, I'm astonished, that that PCA church had taken the decision in the early 1980s to give 50% of its budget to supporting global missions. That's astounding, isn't it? I'm all for local church planting through M&A and other ways that our denomination works. Absolutely. The more the better. But what a commitment that symbolizes. 50% of a huge budget going toward global mission. And where that money flows, prayer follows. And support follows. And the gospel goes. So... A few ideas that I offer to you that I think would help us to consider how do we embrace the truth of this text where Paul says, believers, have a global gospel ambition. But what that needs is churches that grow and gospel workers that go. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text and we thank you for this truly amazing vision that your servant Paul holds out to us. We thank you that you've given us resources. We thank you for the many missionaries over many years that this congregation has supported. And we pray for each of them and their families that you would establish their hearts with hope and joy even amidst the challenges and difficulties of evangelism and church planting in many parts of the world. Europe, Latin America, 
Southeast Asia. And Lord, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts, that we might instruct and encourage one another so that we could grow and so that we could be part of sending other gospel workers out so that your name would be named and glorified among the nations. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.